Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3? We'll start reading at verse 2. Uh, That is on page 1,461 if you're using the Bibles in the pews. Uh, Advent, as we've been saying, is a time of preparing for Jesus. It's a time time of laying the groundwork for an encounter with Jesus. This text that we're about to read introduces us to the person who will introduce us to Jesus. So this is a text about John the Baptist whose job it is to introduce us to Jesus. So let's have a read. Uh, John, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 3. Beginning at verse 2. Listen to God's word. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What shall we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly. And we're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the word of the Lord. I think it's really interesting that Jesus needed somebody to prepare the way for him. Think about that for a second. Jesus, uh, his, his presence was so remarkable and, and so eventful that he needed someone walking a few steps in front of him simply to let people know that he was coming. Never have I needed Someone walking 10 steps in front of me to make sure that people knew I was coming. Attention target shoppers. <laughs> Stephen DeWitt is about to enter the door. I've never needed that. 
I'm guessing you've never needed that, but that's okay. Jesus, for somewhat obvious reasons, required a prophet of God to go before him to tell people that he was on his way. It's almost like Jesus needed someone to prepare the world to absorb the punch that he was about to give. You know how if you feel like you're about to get hit by something, you brace yourself? That was John the Baptist's job, (laughs) to kind of spook everybody out and to get everybody ready to absorb the thing that was about to hit them. Uh, So John the Baptist comes along, and he has everyone take a deep breath, and he has everyone do some soul-searching, and he tells everybody to put their seats in the uh, upright, locked position. Now, here's what I'm wondering. This is not my first advent, nor is it yours, if you understand the words that I'm saying to you. We've done this before. We've prepared for Jesus before. If Jesus was so unsettling and so shocking in the first century that he needed John the Baptist to prepare the way for him, do we still need that today? Do we still need John the Baptist to go 10 steps in front of Jesus? Attention, Elder Park. Jesus is about to enter the building. Do we still need that? Like, who's to say that at any given moment, I'm ready to absorb the shock of Jesus because he is a very unsettling figure. From what I can tell, very few people in the Bible are more important than John the Baptist because he helps us absorb the blow of Jesus. He puts us in a posture where we're ready to meet Jesus. He prepares the way for Jesus in our lives, not just the first time we meet Jesus, but every time that we meet Jesus. If your Bibles are still open, take a look at uh, at this with me. Verses 4 to 6. This is John the Baptist's job description. Okay, This is what he was supposed to do. These words uh, originally came from Isaiah, the prophet, uh, and they were spoken about John, who was to speak about Jesus. I know there's a lot of layers there, but this was John's job, okay? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. So what does that mean? Why would we fill in valleys and lower mountains? What does that mean? Here's the thing. Generally, Roads, paved roads, were not a thing in the first century. Paved roads were not a thing in the days of John the Baptist. A road during this time was really nothing more than a beaten path uh, that animals and people and wagons would go over again and again when people were making their ways from point A to point B. And people tended to figure out the quickest way from point A to point B. And when a whole bunch of people ended up taking that way, that would end up becoming a road. No one ever really paved anything. However, there was one occasion in the ancient world for which a road would be paved. And that is if a king was coming. If a king was coming, things would get paved. It used to be that that roads were only cleared and only paved for kings to travel on. In fact, 
uh, King Solomon, who was a guy with some serious uh, influence and swag, he did this. And you can read about it in 2 Samuel. He paved roads that went ahead of him because he had so much stuff and his entourage was so huge and he found himself to be quite important. So wherever he went, he would have the roads paved. And in order to do that, things would have to get flattened and raised up. And those crooked paths that, you know, if they were only this wide, that could go around trees and mountains, that, that wouldn't work if you were going to pave, if you were taking an entourage. So those things would have to be widened, and hills would have to be flattened, and valleys would have to be brought up, and it was a huge undertaking. Lots and lots of excavating. But places had to be lowered, and places had to be raised. So it seems like John the Baptist's job description was preparing the way for a king. Now, I wonder, as we were reading the text, I wonder if you have the same experience as me when I was um, studying for this this week. So as we read this text... John is quoting the prophet Isaiah, and it's really quite nice. It's really quite wonderful. He's talking about how, you know, the king is coming, pave the thing, raise this, lower that. Uh, 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 In the wilderness, make these roads, paved roads. And then verse 6, all the people will see God's salvation. How lovely. And then verse 7, John suddenly has this warning to these crowds who are coming out to them. He says, you brood of vipers. And it kind of feels like it's out of nowhere. It's like, ooh. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? And I imagine the people saying, um, you did? You came into our towns (laughs) and you told us to follow you into the wilderness to receive the baptism of repentance of sins and forgiveness. So you did. In verse 3, you did. Why this brood of vipers thing? Why is John so angry? Why is, he, why is he so out there? Why this super strong reaction from John? He's the one who asked them to come. Why are they suddenly a brood of vipers? So, at first glance, it doesn't make a lot of sense because the people who are making the trip out to the wilderness, the people who are walking out to the Jordan River, like these are some of the most religious people in the world, right? These are some of the, the best church-going people on the planet. These are the ones who are listening to his instructions. These are the ones who are attending the revival. These are the, these are the ones, these are the children of Abraham. These are the circumcised, orthodox, upstanding people of God. Why is it that when they come out, they get called a brood of vipers? Two things. First of all, uh, this snake imagery, the viper thing, the snake imagery, uh, serpent imagery uh, was a very strong and specific thing in the Jewish tradition. And it always goes back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, the story of Adam and Eve and the fruit and so on, and this, it's the serpent, right? It's the snake, it's the viper who comes along and he tell, and he. He takes the words that God says and he just kind of like just a little bit tweaks it, you know? It's not like he just went out and said some opposite things or or some really vulgar things, but he just a little bit kind of tweaks the message. He twists it ever so slightly and then everything is broken, right? So the first thing that John is referring to 
is this kind of sneakiness. He's like, listen here, you bunch of snakes. He's saying, there's a, there's a deception to you. There's a deception to you. And then secondly, I don't know if you know this, but religious people can be really full of themselves. I mean, present company excluded, of course. <laughs> no, not at all. Present company very much included. Religious people can be very, very full of ourselves. We can be full of ourselves. There are actually statistics to bear this out. It is true that Christians in America, and it's true of other religions in other places of the world, but Christians in America are some of the most self-assured, self-confident, uncompromising, unlistening, arrogant people in the world. This is bared out by statistics. Isn't that incredible? Why is that? Well, I'm sure the answer to that is complicated, but I think John is getting at it here a little bit. Why is it that religious people are some of the most uncompromising, unlistening, arrogant people in the world? Part of it is that, well, if you're right, and if God is on your side, I mean, what else do you need to hear, right? Look out. Suddenly, if we're defending our opinions, we're, def we're striking up a holy war, if we're defending our opinions, then, well, this is, a, this is a matter of light and dark. This is a matter of good and evil. This is a crusade against the darkness. When people think that God share their, shares their perspective, when people think that God shares their politics, when people think that God shares their sensibilities and their sensitivities and their allergies and priorities, well, then look out. Humility goes out the door. This is why, I think, in America, many of our politicians love to cloak their policies and their priorities with religious language. Have you heard this? It's, it's rampant. They clothe their, their priorities and their policies with religious language because it gives people the sense that this is a holy war. It gives people the sense that, well, obviously this is right and that's wrong. Well, this is a matter of good and evil. It makes us dig in our heels more and more and more and think that whatever we think, we're thinking on the, on the, on the behalf of God. John says, you brood of vipers. And he's talking to the most religious people on the planet. You brood of vipers. So he's a voice, John is a voice calling people into the wilderness. All of these very good people, people like you and me, <laughs> we're good people. He's calling us into the wilderness. These very orthodox people show up and he needs to make it clear to them exactly what he's calling them to. He knows these people and he loves these people and he knows the way that they think and he knows what they believe in and he, know how their, he knows how their hearts tend to be and he knows how they tend to have their heels dug in and he knows about the kind of crafty sneakiness because he was raised in it and so John the Baptist calls everyone out to the wilderness all of these very religious people out into the wilderness and he says everybody in the water everybody in the water 
Everybody's getting baptized. Here's the thing. Before John started baptizing people, it was a very different thing. Baptism was a very different thing. It was very different than this wonderful thing that we did this morning. You got here and sat down. You're like, oh, Violet's getting baptized today. This is wonderful. I can't wait. This is going to be beautiful. What a wonderful thing for the Venomas. Baptism didn't used to be that way. In the first century, baptism was something of an embarrassment. In the first century, really, the only people who got baptized were the Gentiles, were the ones who didn't quite fit in the religious tradition, the ones who weren't born into the right religious ethnicity. So baptism was a sign that someone is a, is a religious second-class citizen, citizen. Because the assumption was, well, Gentiles just don't get God, right? Gentiles are kind of out of tune with God, and they have to be washed clean, they have to be made clean before they can understand what it is to become the people of God. But God's people were never baptized. There was no reason. I mean, what if it ain't broke, right? We're the children of Abraham. We are genetically clean. We are ethnically chosen. We are naturally tuned in to the nature of God. But John the Baptist was the first one to say, everybody in the water, everybody I don't care who you are. I don't care where you came from. I don't care how stinking orthodox you are. Everybody in the water. Especially you religious people. Especially you who heard a wild man come into your town telling you about religious revival and thought, that'd be nice, and you were so religious that you wanted to do that. Especially you. Into the water. Because there's this snakiness about you. There's this serpentness about you. There's this viperness about you. We tend to twist things to make them convenient for ourselves. We have this agenda. 90% of the time, maybe we don't even know that we're doing it. But we are. Everybody in the water. Everybody needs to be humbled. Everybody needs to have their mind and their heart Opened, especially the most religious among us, especially as it bears out statistically the most self-assured, self-confident, uncompromising, unlistening, arrogant people around. People like me. Everybody in the water. So what John's first century audience was slow to understand and what you and I are also slow to understand is that we are the ones who need to change for the coming of the Messiah. We are the ones. The king is coming and we are the mountains that need to be laid low. We are. The king is coming and we are the valleys that need to be raised up. The king is coming and we are the crooked road that just isn't going to work when he arrives. It's just not going to work. I recognize this is not pleasant news. I'm just the bearer of the unpleasant news. Um, And I recognize that this is going to take some work on our part. But this 
this way making, this road paving, this is how the king of the universe finds access to our hearts. This is about access. The king is telling us ahead of time, attention, Walmart shoppers, I'm coming. Attention, here I come. Now the problem is access. Now the problem is access. Will you lower your mountains? Will you raise your values? Values? Will you straighten your crooked roads? Because here I come, and now the problem is access. So how do we do this? Um, So the lectionary text actually ends, I think, in verse 6, but I tacked on those extra 10 verses or so because John kind of answers the questions for some people. Some some people are like, like, I don't get it. What do I do? Uh, And John says, well, do you have too many clothes? (laughs) Because if you have two shirts, by the way, that's what I have. I have two shirts. He says, if you have two shirts, you should find someone that has none, and you should give that guy your shirt. And then um, the, uh, the tax collectors, he's like, like well, you should stop s- stealing from people. <laughs> and then there's the soldiers and they're like, well, what we, like, well, you're oppressing people. You, you, need, you need to be just in the way that you handle human beings, and you need, to be cont- you need to learn how to be content with what you have. I don't know, is that good news or bad news that what John gives us is so practical? Right? Wouldn't it be a little bit easier if it was kind of spiritualized? Like, Achieve some kind of holy or something, something that no one can really measure. But the things that he gives us is so concrete. It's like, well, how many shirts do you have? Get rid of some shirts. (laughs) The issue is access. The king is coming. He's on his way. We're a brood of vipers. The king is madly in love with this brood of vipers. He's eventually going to die on a cross for this brood of vipers, but he needs us to know who we are. And he needs us to know the hard-heartedness with which we approach our, our lives. And he's saying, now the issue is access. I read something this week that stuck with me that says, that which goes unseen goes unchanged. That, to me, seems like a great summary of this text. That which goes unseen goes unchanged. John is like, open your eyes. Are we ready to receive the king? Pray with me. We thank you, God in heaven, for fair warning. We thank you for the grace that is John's difficult message. We thank you that you sent him to prepare a way to deal with the access issue that can lead you directly to our hearts. 
We pray today that there would be little or nothing that goes unseen in our own hearts. And from there, little that goes unchanged. We invite you to have access to who we are. And we invite the beautiful grace of your presence. In the name of the coming King, we pray. Amen.